Certainly good to be with you today. When the end comes, bring us home. That is our plea to our God, that when this life comes to an end, we go home with him. And having that hope makes all the difference. And we're glad to have that hope. I say that on behalf of those of us who are Christians, those of us who have made the choice to serve our God, and we hope that for those who may need to make some sort of correction in your life, some sort of course alteration, that if that needs to happen, you'll make that choice yet today so that you can have that hope as well. I invite you to open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Second Chronicles chapter 7, where we're going to spend some considerable amount of our time today looking at one particular verse. And while you're opening there, I'm going to look for the remote. Someone is hid. Someone's trying to throw me off today. I don't know who it is. Glad to be with you today. Want us to think about the idea of the fact that God helps us in incredible fashion. The help that comes from God is beyond comparison. You will find more assistance and help from God than from your best friend, than from the best doctor, from the best confidant. You will find more help that comes from God than anybody or any place else. And I think we understand that. And I think we all agree to that notion. But sometimes we think of our God in limited terms. And it's then that we should go back and look at that verse that we looked at in our Bible class last Sunday morning when we reminded ourselves that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or even we would think in our heads. God is an incredible God of help and assistance. But we have to draw ourselves close to him and live our lives in obedience to him in order for that help to really thrive, in order for that assistance to really be realized. And our study today is to appreciate what that is about. And so I invite you, if you've not already, to open to Second Chronicles chapter 7. Verse 14 is the key text today. And that's where we're going to spend our time. Invite you back, as our brother pointed out, to our services tonight at 5 o'clock, as this being the third Sunday of the month. Brother Alan Wildman will be speaking tonight, and he always does a nice job. And on that note, uh, we were talking with some of the men just a few days ago that when we put up the list of slots for people to choose to sign up to preach on the third Sunday, that list fills up very quickly. And that's a very good sign. That when I asked at the tail end of 2023, 12 men to teach the young people study one a month, I got zero no's and 12 yeses. And just because you say no because you're busy doesn't mean that that's bad, that that's a mark against you, but it's just a sign that we are a blessed congregation with men and women who are willing to help and willing to teach. And we look forward to Alan's sermon tonight. We are all familiar with the phrase, revise, uh, revise, revive us again. Sometimes we need revision 
Uh, and that's true. So revise us again, maybe as a new theme song for us to consider. But revive us again is a powerful song. We praise thee, O God, for the son of thy love. And then we, we, we say, revive us. Give us new life. Make us new. And I could have called this sermon, revive us again. But I didn't because I wanted us to think about the idea of the incredible help that comes from our God. And so when you think about 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, this has been called or nicknamed by many in the religious world, and I think probably appropriately so, the Old Testament revival passage for its time thousands of years ago and for its time-tested principles that are true in 2024 as well. And so what I'd like to do is to begin reading in verse 12 and read through verse 18 simply to establish a little bit more of the context. If you just flip back a page or two in your Bibles, you'll see that this is a a cause for a celebration. The temple, the city, the world is at peace, at least for the Jewish people, and things are going well. And so Solomon here is dedicating the temple, praise to our Lord, praises our Lord. And then it says in verse 12 that our God, the same one that we serve, appeared to Solomon by night and said, I've heard your prayer. And I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And then he goes on to make some provisional statements. For example, in verse 13, when I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, when bad stuff starts happening, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then... I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, And do according to all that I've commanded you. And if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I made a covenant with David, your father, saying you shall not fail to have a man as a ruler in Israel. Verse 14 is, it seems to me, the linchpin in this little paragraph. It's a powerful verse that lists things that you must do in order for the results to transpire. It is a classic if-then statement. In fact, it begins in most versions with the word if, and then halfway through verse 14, it says, then I will hear and I will bless, I will forgive, and I will heal. Revival, it seems to me, is at the root of the very idea of vitality or life. And so when we talk about revival, we may talk about personal revival. We may talk about family revival, marriage revival, as we even talked about just a few weeks ago with our brother Don, congregational revival. 
whether it be localized or whether it be more global, we all appreciate the idea of life because life is central to our very existence and we are engineered to cling to our lives. I've talked to a number of people who've been in the hospital before, uh, especially at younger ages, not when they are aged and older and expecting to pass away. And they'll make statements like, I'm just not ready to die yet. I, I don't want to die. And in fact, when a body is in the process of dying, sometimes it will surprise us and a person will linger or last for days or weeks or months or years. Sometimes when we want for them to go ahead and pass away peacefully, there's something about us that we want life and we don't want it to end. And so the fact that life is so central to our existence reminds us of the notion that a renewed life should be of great encouragement to us all. Brother Eric took us through the first dozen or so verses of Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. And he reminded us of a number of these particular things, that no matter where we've come from or who our parents were or even the mistakes we've made, the regrets we have, and the sins we've committed, God says, I can still work with you. In our class last night with the young people, the illustration that Brother Delk provided was, yes, If you have committed murder, you're going to face some sort of a penalty in this life. But you can still be forgiven. And there will be people who will be next to you in the mansion next door who may have committed murder, who've been forgiven by God. Think about that for a moment. That Heaven is going to be filled with individuals that have made grievous errors and mistakes like you and me. And they've been forgiven by God's grace, and by their faithful obedience to him. But that doesn't come with just a snap of a finger, nor does it transpire just because we wish it so. It's because we ask for revival in our lives, and that's dependent on a number of things. That is the scope of our study together today. I want to look at four things that are outlined in this text that we must do. It's not should, it's not might, it's not it's a good idea. These are things that we must do. And we're going to use verse 14 as the outline. And so if you want to underline those words or take notes, certainly I encourage you to do so. But the first of those goes back to, again, what we talked about in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 2. And that is we've got to be men and women of humility. I didn't make that up. Solomon didn't make that up. God said, first and foremost, if, verse 14, my, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Because sometimes we as men and women get pretty high and mighty in our own thinking and we think of ourselves way up here and God says, you've got to see yourself as I see you. God is way up here and we are not. God is powerful and we are not. And so we've got to see ourselves appropriately. 
And, and we, especially in the United States or in most Western countries, we look at ourselves with a sense of pride. Look how much we've accomplished and look at all the good that we've done and look at all the medical advancements that we have been uh, a part of and our scientists are able to succeed and, and look at the money that we've made. And God says, be careful with that attitude because you've got to see yourself in a humble way. Humility has been at the core of godly service since the very beginning. And when Adam and Eve, when Cain, when others from Genesis 2, 3, and 4 saw themselves as being above the law, they elevated themselves to a place above the Lord, just as we have done. Eric said this morning, it's the framework for how we work together. And I like that. So I jotted that down in my notes. But what does it mean, humility? I think we understand and we talked about the idea of a lowering of oneself. But in the Hebrew, the language in which this is written, it literally meant to bow one's knee in subjection or to bend one's knee in the idea of saying, you are higher than me. I've known of Christians who have laid down completely on the floor in prayer to God because they wanted to get as low as they could to speak to their God. There are sometimes Christians who will physically bow the knee when they pray publicly, or certainly many of you may do so privately. And that certainly is a right thing to do if you choose to do so. When we began our services this morning, Brother Keith, who led us in a very good and ably worded prayer, said, let us bow. And even though we were sitting and we may not have physically changed our uh, stature, so to speak, we bowed our heads, we looked to heaven and said, God, hear our prayer. You are great, you are awesome, you are wonderful, and you are indeed the one who makes the sun to rise, the sun to set. You are the one who is in charge of everything around us. Humility, it seems to me, is key because it leads us to see ourselves for who we truly are. And what we do is we sometimes see ourselves for how we want to see ourselves. Physically, that's the case. And certainly spiritually, that's the case as well. But we are to be men and women who look in that spiritual mirror, and the mirror doesn't lie. You look in the mirror physically, and you see things as you grow older, and you're like, who is that older person looking at me? And you realize it's yourself. Those of you that are younger may not appreciate that, may think that those of us who are a little bit older are just exaggerating, but it's going to happen, and you start seeing wrinkles, and you start seeing less hair, or you start seeing gray hair, or things happen to you physically because you're aging. We've got to be honest with ourselves and not pretend to be something that we are not. But this, it seems to me, includes a spiritual willingness to admit, perhaps to others, but most importantly to God, I am a sinner. I am not perfect. And we look at our brethren, and because we are private individuals, and that's okay, generally speaking, with with an asterisk next to it, that we don't share all the the blemishes of our past or of our present. 
And I'm thankful that God does not insist that we share every single blemish in our life right now. I mean, can you imagine if you had to submit a a two-page summary every week to the local shepherds of every sin, and then they would read it, and then they would report to the congregation, all right, Sister Smith has done this, this, and this this week. I mean, how difficult would that be? God didn't ask that of us. He does say confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another. And I don't think that means doing so publicly in a, in a case like this, though that certainly is part of the process. But there are members who are here who will come to another member or two and say, I need you to pray for me because I'm struggling with X, Y, or Z, whatever the case may be. Lowliness is a word that is used in the New King James Version, which is translated in the New American Standard quite quite often as the idea of humility. And the reason for all of this being important is because humility enables God to work on us, with us, and in us. If you are not a humble person, or let, let me rephrase that. If you and I are not working on humility, it's as if we have handcuffed God and said, we're not going to allow you and your hands to work in our lives in the way that you would otherwise desire or want. If you notice, there is a conditional nature associated with humility. What's the first word in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, the revival verse? It's a very short two-letter word, if. We have got to do that. And so in Matthew 23 and verse 12, a passage that you are likely familiar with, laid in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus himself would say, whoever exalts himself is going to be humbled But whoever humbles himself will be exalted in this particular text, the idea of being lifted up. We sometimes lift ourselves up, and indeed Solomon would say, be careful about putting yourself in a place of higher up because it's easier to fall. And the further up we elevate ourselves, the further that fall is. And we ought not do that. Rather, let God raise us up, which goes back to the scripture reading, which we will not reread, James chapter 4, verses 2 through 10. But I was thinking about that particular passage where it says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will do what? He will lift you up. It's, it's, it's the fulfillment of, it seems to me, Matthew twenty three twelve. But James chapter 4 is, it strikes me, a New Testament parallel to Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 12 through 18. That 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 12 through 18, which the center of which is the revival verse, if my people, dot, 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 then dot, 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 is the same concept as illustrated thousands of years later by James when he says, you've got to humble yourself. You've got to see yourself for how God wants you to be seen. But you can't just say, well, I'm humble and I'm good to go. But rather the second thing in our list of four that uh, God says to Solomon is we've got to be men and women who pray. And I want us to think about prayer a little bit differently today by making this particular observation that is important and may have crossed your mind, 
Maybe it hasn't crossed your mind. But that is the omniscience of God can't be a preventative thing for not communicating with him. I'm not going to talk with God because he knows what my needs are anyway. Now, I don't think that anybody would be as irresponsible to actually say that out loud. But I do believe that it's possible that that could cross our mind. You know, I'm busy today, I'm busy tomorrow, and I'm, I'm scheduled out the next day as well. I may not have sufficient time to petition my God in prayer, but he knows everything anyway. That's a very dangerous attitude to have. And we've got to be cautious about that. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. And in fact, Jesus would make the point in the New Testament and say, he already knows what you need before you ask. And there's a lesson there on why we pray to God. And I think there are reasons why we are to do so. But I think it's important to acknowledge that even in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, Men who had direct one-on-one relationships with God, what did they do? They prayed. And who is the best example of this? Christ himself. Who would go to great lengths, literally, miles, to escape to the wilderness or to find a secluded place or to find a quiet place to go and pray to his father. Did God the Father hear something from Jesus the Son in prayer? For example, in John 17, the lengthiest prayer, and God the Father says, that surprises me. I didn't know that was coming. I don't think so. I'm not in the mind of the Father to really understand all that. I'm not sure that there's anything that we communicate to God in prayer that God says, I already know about it. But he still wants that relationship. And I believe that the pattern for asking God is helpful in establishing a pattern for seeking help from one another in our brotherhood as well. If we want God's help, what do we need to do? We need to ask for it. We need to pray, which goes back to James chapter four. He says, the reason sometimes you don't have certain things in your life is because you are not asking for it. Now you've got to be careful how you ask. Go to verse three. The new King James talks about asking amiss or some more modern versions talking about asking in an inappropriate fashion or with an inappropriate rationale for your request. Uh, so we have gross examples of that, that if you say, dear Lord, would you please bless me with a brand new Lamborghini? That'd be wonderful. Um, you don't want that anyway. You couldn't afford the insurance on it, right? So God says, no, I'm not going to give you that. Stick with your Ford Fusion or whatever. Uh, he says, uh, I want you to pray for things in a way that you are able to use them for good and that it will be for your best. And always, going back to even Jesus praying in the garden, if it's your will, if it's your will, if it's your will. And then never to grow incredibly discouraged while waiting. Jesus is told of us in Luke chapter 18 that men ought always to pray and to never get discouraged or to lose heart or to give up, depending on the version from which you are reading. 
Prayer is hard sometimes. And I think we have to admit that. Because one, it involves an investment in your time. And it requires you, number one, being humble, going back to the first part. In fact, that's why we bow when we pray, physically or figuratively. There's a third thing that he acknowledges here as God speaks to Solomon. And he says, I want you to seek my face. I don't know that I think about God's face very often, but let's think about it for just a minute or two. Now, we know that God is not a human being, such that he doesn't have a face in the way that we have a face. That being said, we are one day going to see him as he is. I don't know what that's going to look like, but it will be spectacular when we see him. We know that Jesus, when he was a human being, had a physical face with ears, eyes, nose, mouth, all that kind of stuff that we are accustomed and used to. But God's face is talked about in the Bible on relative occasion. And he says, I want you to seek my face. And then he goes on in verses 15, and one of the reasons why I read verse 15 and following, he says, my eyes will be open and my ears will be attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. In fact, 14 different times in the Old Testament, the idea of God's face. So those of you that are signed up to preach on a third Sunday or maybe I'll write this down and come back and revisit this. Maybe a sermon on the face of God at some point could be interesting to explore those 14 instances. But God's command to seek his face, it seems to me, is very sensible when we consider that it's possible that he do what? Hide his face from us. And so I want to go back and look at just two passages, one in Deuteronomy and one in the same book that we are kind of anchored in this morning. So go back to the book of Deuteronomy that we studied about two years ago in some detail over the course of three months. And near the end of Deuteronomy, there is an account that we are somewhat familiar with. And this is at the end of Deuteronomy where Joshua is coming on the scene And, of course, Moses is going to exit the scene as he passes away, uh, and God buries him. I always thought that was neat, God burying Moses. What a a wonderful concept. He says, my anger, verse 17, shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them. I will hide my face from them. They shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them. And they will say, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And then to reiterate the point, he goes on to the next verse of the next sentence. I will surely hide my face in that day. Why? Because of all the evil which they have done in that they have turned to other gods. There's something about seeing a person's face. A preacher friend of mine who I remember the first time I ever heard the phrase, but he said, Leland, I miss your face. That just made me feel special. Now, there are some faces that maybe you, you want to miss from time to time, people that trouble you or people that belittle you. You say, I don't want to see that face for a while. But as brethren, when we don't see each other for a week or two, when someone's been away for a couple of weeks, ah, their face is back. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad to see their face. 
and I want to see God's face. And God says, I'm going to turn my face away from you. You're not going to be able to see me. That hurts my feelings. And God says, good, I wanted to hurt your feelings. I want it to be that it feels wrong because you want my face back to you. And so in 2 Chronicles, where we have been most of this morning in chapter 30, in verse 9, we see a parallel text where the text records for us, for if you return to the Lord, your brethren and your children will be treated with compassion by those who lead them captive. So, verse 9, they may come to this land, For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. Let's be men and women who love God's face and want to see his face. And might I suggest in your private prayer or even men in your public prayers here at the assemblies that you say, God, help me to seek your face. And help me to one day see your face as it truly is. But between now and then, let me never be in a place where I can't find your face. I always want to be able to look up. And Hebrews chapter 12 says, fix your gaze or fix your eyes on the Lord, on Jesus. Well, number four, we must turn from our wickedness. This idea of repentance is, is, is elementary to everything that we do as men and women of God. Now, the word that is used here in 2 Chronicles, at least in the New King James Version, in verse 14 of chapter 7, is wicked ways. We don't use the word wicked very often. And in fact, what we sometimes do is we use watered-down language. An alternative choice, an alternative lifestyle. This morning we talked about tolerance, and we said, well, we're not going to judge anybody for anybody's behavior, anybody's choices. So we water things down and make us feel better about something being wrong. But the word wicked is used 450 sometimes in the Bible. Apparently. Now, someone once rightly pointed out, if the word is used once, it's important. So it's not 450 times more important. But the fact is, is God doesn't say, well, I really wish you wouldn't do that because that, shame on you. No, he says, that's wicked. When you are involved in those things that are contrary to my will, that's wicked. It's wrong. It's evil. It's sin. It's lawless. And it will send you to hell. And God says, I want to be very clear about that. I don't want anyone to miss the bold print uh, font that says, if you do not do what I have asked you to do, you will be separated from me, from my face, from my home, from heaven. You won't have anything to do with that. In the New Testament times, we are taught that we are to die to sin. Go and read Colossians 2 and Colossians 3. In some ways, it's kind of a violent passage, the idea of put to death the old man. We are to look at the old man and say, I want you dead. I don't want you alive. I don't want you on life support. I want to bury you, and then I want to just forget about you and never let you come back and revisit. But as I've said before, what we do, what I do, what we as Christians do from time to time is we kind of put the old man on life support. 
give him some oxygen from time to time and say, don't go anywhere, I might want to come back to you. No, get rid of the old ways, the old habits, and sometimes that means getting rid of old friends and old behaviors. In Romans chapter 6, a kind of similar passage to Colossians 2 and 3, it seems to me, the apostle there, Paul, says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Absolutely not, or certainly not, or God forbid. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? God doesn't say, just stop what you're doing and you'll be okay. He says, I want you to stop. I want you to turn. I want you to make that U-turn we talk about as part of repentance. And that's hard as well. Someone once said that baptism requires courage, and it does. It requires a commitment. It requires getting wet. Uh, Most people or a number of people when they're baptized, especially uh, you know this if you're the person baptizing, they may be a little bit nervous because people may be watching or whatever. And, you know, it's a big commitment. But baptism is easy compared to the repentance, one said. Because that's where you're making a daily, 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 hourly, hourly, hourly choice to not do wrong, to do what is right. And some days that's easy. And in some places, it's easy. If only we could just stay in here 24 hours a day, seven days a week with our brethren and never had to interact with the world. Oh, wait a minute. But then the world will never find out about Jesus. So that's not a good idea either. But... But it's easy when we're with our brethren to remain faithful. But when you're with a coworker who's foul-mouthed, when you're with a family member who doesn't share the spiritual foundation you have, it's difficult. So we must do those four things, which leads then to the closing couple of things, and that is what it means. So go back to verse 14 to the last part and read the the second half of verse 14 just one more time and then make five or 10 minutes worth of observations in closing. He says, then, if you do those four things, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will hear, I will heal their land. So what is it that God's help means? It means he has the ability to hear from heaven. I, I love that phrase. He, he, he's up there, wherever that is, and he hears us. And there's not a time where you as a child of God say, I need your help, dear Lord. And he says, I, I didn't hear you. Can you speak up a little bit louder? You can even say it in your, in your brain without actually voicing it, and he'll still hear you. Literally, it's the idea of God is a witness to our words. He witnesses the words. It means, secondly, that he will forgive us of our sins. God forgives more faithfully than we 
often forgive one another, which it seems to me is why Jesus provides commentary to that model prayer in Matthew chapter 6. And he says, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will the Father in heaven forgive you. And so when we say, God, please forgive us, it is good and appropriate for us from time to time to plead with him, help us as we try to forgive others. Because if you've been alive for any period of time, someone's wronged you, someone will wrong you, someone will hurt you, and you will have the responsibility of forgiving individuals that it's difficult to forgive. God pardons us, gives us forgiveness, says, I'm not going to hold it against you any longer because his mercy, as we read elsewhere, is greater than judgment. And thirdly, it means that he will heal us. Someone said, well, I don't need healing. I feel fine. Well, You need a dose of humility to realize how much healing you actually need. God can mend us when we are broken. And we sometimes sing the song, bring Christ your broken life, marred by or marred because of sin. If you're not a Christian, you are broken. And you should feel desperate for healing and go to sleep at night with difficulty acknowledging something's not right because you need to be mended. The description, it seems to me, of God's help is both a comfort and a warning. So if you go back and we were to really delve into a longer sermon on 2 Chronicles, the previous chapters, if you go back and look at some of the context that we skipped, the great temple was built... The ark is in its home where it belongs, so to speak. And then great worship had just concluded. And so in some ways, these people are at a spiritual high where things are going very well. And they're high-fiving each other saying, we're doing great. And then God comes along and says, there's going to come a time where you're not going to be so great because I know my people. And when that happens, I'm going to need you to do those four things so that I can help, so that I can heal, so that I can hear, so that I can do all the things that I've promised to do. God felt, it seems to me, vital to remind Israel of where it had been and where it was going. So what does it mean for you and what does it mean for me? The fact is, is spiritually speaking and physically speaking and financially speaking and mentally speaking. Either you're present here this morning and things are going well or things are a little bit rough or somewhere in between. You got your good days, you got your not so great days. And the fact is, is God can help with the physical and he can help with the mental and he can help with the financial But more importantly, God says, I can take care of you spiritually and give you a hope that regardless of all the other challenges you ever face, I'll be there to be there for you. I'll be there so that I can be your your foundation, so that I can be the rock on which you build. Because the fact is, is I still need God's help. Even those who are Christians who've been saints for three or four or five decades still acknowledge, I need God's help going forward. 
revive me again. And that's what the revival verse, it seems to me, is all about. And we hope that you are revived. I appreciated Keith's prayer this morning where he listed the various things that we're doing today, the the giving and the Lord's Supper and the praying and the singing and the studying. I hope that the last part that I just referenced, the studying, the preaching and the working together through the word, that that's been helpful. And truly, I hope that it helps you feel, ah, I've got new life. I feel good about it. Because I'm doing what the Lord wants. I'm not perfect. That's why I'm humble and realize that I need to make corrections in my life on a daily basis. But if you are not a child of God, we hope that you'll become one today. If you need to make a correction in your life, as we started out this morning, we end this morning with acknowledging that from time to time we sin, but all things are ready. Come to the feast and we'd welcome the opportunity to pray for you and with you as you work for new life in Christ Jesus. If we can help you, let us know while we stand, while we sing.